1: what now after congress puts another short-term band-aid on the federal budget and what are the nation's cattle producers watching up on capitol hill epa announces the final production volumes for biomass-based diesel for 2023 and after a disastrous year for pork producers last year 2024 has to be better right we'll find out today on agritalk
2: Live from the edge of warmness via Farm Journal broadcast, this is AgriTalk. This morning, we'll begin with a conversation with Kurt Kovaric from the Clean Fuels Alliance America. Then it's Ethan Lane from NCBA. Later, Bill Even from the National Pork Board and directly following the news, Karen Bonerch from Farm Journal's Milk. I'm the handsome newsman, Davis Michelson. And now, filling in for Chip, me Michelle Rook. Good morning, Michelle. Hey.
1: Good morning, Davis. I don't know. The edge of warmness, I think that's mm-hmm. pushing it just a little you bit. You think so? Okay. Yeah, maybe. Maybe.
2: maybe. Well, you've been enjoying the northern tropics up there, though, Michelle. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You know, you're spoiled rotten with the weather up there, from what I hear.
1: Yeah, as I look out and see, you know, almost a little town across the lake there where they're ice fishing. So mm-hmm. it
2: sounds like mm-hmm. the ice
1: fishing has been really good for people. So Well, good.
2: Good. That raises yeah. spirits, Yeah.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And uh, when's the next weather system supposed to be coming in? Are we going to have any more interruptions to livestock processing or anything like that? I don't know.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure we know or not. It's been Although, a bumpy Brett,
1: ride the last three weeks. So it
2: absolutely has. Brett Waltz did offer us just a little bit of relief toward the end of January, early part of February, there, where we may see a bit of a warming trend. But I think you're hitting it right on the head there, Michelle. Volatility in the weather to remain.
1: Yeah, no doubt. We'll talk a little bit about processing backups and whatnot with Bill, even from the National Pork Board coming up a little bit later on today. But we got a jam-packed show, Davis. Why don't you kick us off with news?
2: For sure. Well, let's start with the weather outlook. Heavy rainfall and concerns for flash flooding will exist through Thursday morning across the lower Mississippi Valley. A swath of freezing rain and some accumulating snowfall will impact portions of the Midwest, lower Great Lakes, hello, South Bend, and the Northeast. Much milder air with temperatures surging well above normal can be expected by the middle of the week for much of the eastern half of the country, Michelle, and that will be a much welcome warm-up for us.
1: Absolutely.
2: In, more, uh, in other news, more than one out of every six ratepayers are behind on their energy bills, the National Energy Assistance Directors Association has said in a report. Household heating costs in particular have jumped as much as 20% since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic according to the group's findings.
1: That's interesting, considering Mm -hmm. they do have quite a bit of disposable income and savings, from what I understand. Mm
2: -hmm. Or at least they did at one time.
1: Or at least they did, like you said.
2: Right. The production of biomass-based diesel, which includes motor and aviation fuel, reached 4 billion gallons in 2023, marking a 1 billion gallon increase from the previous year. According to the Clean Fuels Alliance America, Kurt Kovarik of the trade group highlighted the growth of advanced biofuel, renewable diesel, SAF, and heating oil from sustainably sourced feedstocks within the clean fuels industry. And Michelle, you got your finger on the pulse. We're going to talk to Kurt in the uh, the next segment, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, continuing to point out the fact that EPA, with their volume levels that they mandated in the RFS, are not getting or hitting the mark.
2: Mm, I'm going to stay tuned for that. South American crop consultant Dr. Michael Cordonier maintains a lower bias toward Brazil's soybean and corn crops, but kept both production estimates unchanged this week. He also kept his Argentine crop estimates for soybeans and for corn steady. Cordonier expects total South American production to rise 9.2% for soybeans and 0.5% for corn versus last year.
1: still a lot of questions about how big that crop really is in Brazil.
2: Yep. Well, Michelle, Austria, France, Italy, and nine other EU countries are arguing that lab-grown meat poses a threat to genuine food production methods. They claim that lab-grown meat does not constitute a sustainable alternative to traditional farm-based production and raises ethical, economic, social, and public health questions. Somebody had to say it, and it sounds like these EU countries are pushing back on the fake meat stuff, Michelle.
1: Well, yeah, we've had a pushback here in this country but i think it's been muted compared to where it probably needs to be at this point
2: yep well australia is poised to produce much more wheat than other crops this year than previously thought after rainfall confounded expectations michelle this is interesting in december china issued licenses to 26 companies to produce and sell genetically modified corn and soybean seeds and last week approved additional varieties of gm beans and corn for import and production beijing has been very cautious on the development and deployment of gm crops It's steadily opening up commercial cultivation their focus on food security has intensified in recent years based on various factors the trade war with the u.s covid-19 pandemic and in russia's invasion of ukraine president xi jinping uh, emphasized the importance of food security stating we will fall under others control If we do not hold our rice bowls steady.
1: Yeah, interestingly enough, they're projecting that maybe adoption of GM crops could be 85 percent in the next three to five years. Mm -hmm. Huge ramp up.
2: Uh, Hundreds of thousands of Argentine workers are set to strike against President Javier Millet's economic reforms. Uh, In other news, Russian missile strikes have struck Ukraine's major cities, Kiev and Kharkiv, resulting in casualties and damaging a gas pipeline in Kharkiv, as reported by Ukrainian authorities. Amid this, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, dismissed Western-backed peace initiatives as futile during a U.N. Security Council meeting in New York. And finally, the European Commission is looking into ways of allowing Eastern EU member states to restrict ag imports from Ukraine as it extends trade liberalization <laughs> with Kiev. Michelle, over to right.
1: you. Hey, thanks so much, Davis. And joining us right now, Karen Bonard, editor of Farm Journal's Milk. And you're in Phoenix, I understand, attending the International Dairy Forum today. What are you finding out?
3: Well, good morning, Michelle. Yeah, um, yesterday, Michael Dykes um, IDFA CEO, uh, took the stage and he shared a lot of insights. He says that our industry has growth mindset, our farmers want to grow, our processors want to grow. And he also shared, Michelle, that if we're not growing, we're going to, you know, we're not looking towards the future, we're going to get surpassed by others. They did a study and it said that 60% of our processing executives are expressing optimism, if you will, for 2024, and are excited for growth. And 73% percent of them plan to increase their investments over the next three to five years, which is obviously, um, you know, kind of surprising. More than seven billion is planned for processing investments. Those plants are coming on in states like Texas and the Hillmar plant in Dodge City, Kansas. Dykes is optimistic that producers will fill that need for milk but I was able to speak to other leading experts that down here in Arizona that don't share that same level of optimism. Michelle, as you know, $14 and $15 milk doesn't Mm -hmm. really spell growth at the farm level and high cattle prices also doesn't entice guys to grow.
1: Yeah. So you were pretty surprised with his findings or his outlook.
3: I was because, um, you know, in States, like when I was uh, this summer in South Dakota, I mean, you heard some maybe rumors of some growth, but no, no plants are like, you know, expanding or anything like that. So it'll see, it'll be interesting just to see um, how quickly growth comes on and really where they're going to find that milk. Um, Because uh, guys are kind of holding steady, if you will. That's their plans for this year with just really a low milk price that has very, very tight margins at best. Yeah. And the outlook doesn't look like it's going to get As far as milk prices, better any time real soon, does it? No, I spoke to some leading economists, and it's kind of a wait-and-see game. All right. Well, thanks so much, Karen
1: Bonart, editor of Farm Journal's Milk, joining us here on Agritalk. When we come back, we'll talk to Kurt Kavarik with Clean Fuels Alliance America.
2: Our name says it all, Agritalk. What more do you need to know?
1: And welcome back to Agritalk. I'm Michelle Rookin for Chip Glory this morning. Well, it is an exciting time for the biofuels industry and the folks uh, at Clean Fuels Alliance America. Kurt Kavarik, who is vice president of federal affairs, joining us this morning. Good to have you along, Kurt. Thanks for joining us.
0: Glad to be with you, Michelle.
1: Well, I said it's an exciting time for the industry. Uh, You got figures from EPA announcing final production volumes for 2023 under the Renewable Fuel Standard. And wow, some record numbers.
0: Absolutely. Uh, The information that came out of EPA last uh, week confirmed what we uh, knew was happening, and that is a a significant expansion of the biomass-based diesel uh, market here and and industry here domestically uh, for 2022 calendar year, our production in the United States was about 3 billion gallons, and US production topped 4 billion gallons for 2023. So, a full additional 1 billion gallons of uh, biomass based diesel produced here in the United States. Now, a lot of that is uh, renewable diesel, but uh, you know, biodiesel continues to be a strong product, and now we have New entrants in the space looking to further optimize facilities to make sustainable aviation fuel. So a whole host of new low-carbon, renewable, domestically produced uh, biofuels uh, being produced from a range of feedstocks, which is is great for our country. It's great for our economy, national security, and certainly our, our ag economy.
1: And right now above the RFS, uh, Renewable Volume Obligations, EPA set out or announced in June, right? A little disappointing that, there.
0: That's right. Absolutely. And and EPA had an opportunity with this three-year proposal to set volumes for biofuels use that were aggressive and, and achievable. We worked for many months to try to uh, encourage them and, and get them to understand where the industry was going in terms of capacity. Unfortunately, their proposal uh, missed the mark. So as we mentioned uh, 2023 volumes increased by 1 billion gallons Unfortunately EPA only increased the, the renewable volume obligations under the RFS by 60 million gallons for 23. so so significantly behind um, and we have to live with these volumes for 2024 and 2025 because that's what their proposal uh, set forth uh, a little bit better than what they did for 23 but still way missing the mark and you know the the real The real issue here is all of the announcements, both in terms of new production, but then also feedstock to support this expansion of the industry. We've had somewhere around 20 new crush uh, announcements being made, investments in new facilities or or significant expansions, a value of about $6 billion, adding about a third of additional soybean and canola crushing uh, capacity in our nation, which is fantastic for uh, the soybean farmer. It's fantastic for the end user of the protein meal. Um, and it's great for the food and biofuels industry that that uh, rely upon that vegetable oil.
1: Yeah. The interesting part is um, versus maybe when we started with ethanol and biodiesel, the petroleum industry is actually walking with you hand in hand on these projects instead of you having to buck them, right?
0: That's absolutely right. I mean, uh, some could say they're slow learners. Uh, the the renewable fuel standard has been in place since 2005. So it's it's nice to see them. Finally, coming around, but that's what that's what they're doing in terms of expansion of their own, uh, particularly renewable diesel production at uh, existing petroleum refineries that that maybe aren't as efficient uh, or are ill ill suited in terms of location or region to continue as a petroleum refinery. They're converting them uh, to uh, renewable diesel facilities. So we have some in California. We have a member um, in Texas. uh, There's a lot of Uh, Interest, not just because of the Renewable Fuel Standard, but you have state policies, you've got uh, policies coming out of corporate boardrooms, all putting pressure on uh, the economy to decarbonize. So this is an opportunity for them to perhaps use some assets that they may have and convert them to a biofuel production.
1: Absolutely. All right. Why is the RFS so important when you have states like California that already have low carbon fuel standards?
0: it's kind of a belt and suspenders approach if if you think about it um the rfs existed long before a lot of these state low carbon fuel policies is it is it perhaps uh less of a driving force now than it than it was when first conceived absolutely but you still need kind of that range of of policies both at state and federal levels to to send the market signal to continue to to grow the industry and quite frankly you know we don't want all of uh our low carbon fuel going to the state of California or the West Coast. A lot of it is today because of those state policies. But in our view, you know, there there's a desire and a need for uh, low carbon fuels to displace home heating oil in the Northeast. Uh, we're looking at um, ocean going and, and marine applications, rail. Those are things that are national applications. We don't, you know, it, it's in our interest to 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 deliver the fuel where the customer base wants it the most. And in, in a lot of cases, it's those extremely hard to decarbonize transportation sectors like aviation, rail, marine, and home heat. Uh, so our focus is on all of the above.
1: Yeah. And speaking of California, uh, the Phillips 66 company, a uh, renewable diesel plant in California got environmental approval yesterday.
0: Absolutely. And this is this is a perfect example of, of repurposing a petroleum asset into uh, a new renewable fuel producer uh p66 is is not a member of clean fuels uh, but this is a this is a a great example of the transition that's occurring the positivity that it, it, it involves for consumers who want lower carbon fuels and the feedstock providers who are, are producing the the soybean oil canola oil the animal fats uh, to deliver to them
1: yeah. I had read that they're asking as well, though, to use Argentina bean oil, even though they have to import it in with an import duty. Is that right?
0: Uh, that could be possible. I don't know exactly. Okay. Uh, and, you know, and that's that's a signal, right, that to send to, to U.S. producers that, you know, P66 shouldn't have to go to Argentina to find soybean oil. Uh, if they need more soybean oil, our markets will respond and we'll get them the soybean oil they need.
1: Absolutely. Okay, we have another exciting sustainable aviation fuel plant, what, grand opening in Georgia this week too?
0: That's right. There's a a, a small company, a very innovative uh, technology that's con- going to convert, uh, I, I believe in their case, it's Brazilian sugarcane ethanol, but it is ethanol to jet. That's a, a huge area of opportunity, particularly for America's uh, corn farmers, ethanol producers to perhaps uh, optimize ethanol production for aviation. We know there's very other uh, very few other opportunities for aviation to uh, reduce their carbon emissions or or uh, convert to a different fuel, but drop in sustainable aviation fuel uh, is a, is a real opportunity. So we're working on that issue with with our members. I know the ethanol industry is is pretty excited about that. This is the first maybe the first of its kind. it's a it's a difficult technology to prove out, but but one with a lot of promise.
1: So, there are a lot of different feedstocks for SAF, as you mentioned. And what percentage will like soybean oil make up of that feedstock component?
0: It's a pretty, it, it's going to, in the near term, it's going to be pretty small. I think uh, last year, the total gallons used of sustainable aviation fuel was something like 20 or 30. I think it was about 25 million gallons. And we're talking about multiple billion gallon uh, aviation uh, uh, demand. So for the near term, it's probably going to be a, a pretty small percentage, but a huge potential for, for markets down the road. And I think, you know, on the ethanol side, particularly those who see the penetration of electric vehicles in the in the light duty sector uh, eroding some of their uh, space in the in the gasoline tank, they look at aviation to be a real opportunity to to make up some of those gallons. Yeah. For the for the biomass-based diesel sector. Uh, you know, we operate in a in a in a tra- in the transportation sector that's extremely hard to decarbonize with any uh, electric or battery or uh, battery power. So, you know, we're not we're not quite as concerned about market erosion from electric vehicles. We've got a lot of promise in a lot of sectors: uh, home heat, marine, aviation, rail, heavy duty trucking. You know, we're looking to to de- to develop out those relationships wherever we can get the get a premium for the product based on who who is desiring the attributes of the fuel uh, the most.
1: Just how big is the sustainable aviation fuel in the renewable diesel market going to be, do you think?
0: Well, we're at four billion gallons today. I think there are plans kind of on the books or penciled out to add two maybe two or three billion additional gallons of renewable diesel or biomass-based diesel here in the near in the near term. Um, and it's all based on feedstock. You know, to what extent uh, can the, the used cooking oil be collected? Can the animal fats and, and the soybean oil? And that a lot of it is determined on uh, our nation's ability to to find those uh, feedstocks, oil, oil, waste, fats and greases and, and lipids that can be converted into this low carbon fuel. So the potential is there. Uh, the market signals need to be sent through through state policy, federal policy, Policies and boardrooms, and then the, the investment will follow, and the build out of the industry will follow.
1: Yeah, just quickly, um, helping to push that. I know some senators have introduced the Farm to Fly Act for SAF, so you guys are pushing that as well here.
0: Absolutely, and this would this would uh, make uh, sustainable aviation fuel eligible for certain USDA bioenergy programs, okay. uh, codify some important definitions. Gotcha. And basically, get buy-in from USDA on on agriculture-based sustainable aviation fuel. All
1: right, thanks so much, Kurt Kavarek with Clean Fuels Alliance America. We will be back after markets with Ethan Lane and CBA.
6: Time for markets now with the experts from Pro Farmer.
1: And joining us, Brian Grady, editor of Pro Farmer. Well, Brian, lots of green on the board today and a nice performance in the grains without a whole lot of bullish news. Is this all technical?
7: Yeah, technical and and just corrective in uh, nature here, Michelle. Uh, uh, You know, trying to work uh, off those lows that we posted here recently. and, and. you know, the funds have been active on the short side of the market, and so these markets are probably due for a correction. I, I think one of the keys as we move through today's session will probably be soy meal. Um, that's been on the weaker side of, of the markets here recently and, and trading uh, pretty solidly higher here at mid-morning. So we'll see if they can hold on to those gains. Uh, corn market, it's kind of just holding near unchanged at the moment and, and struggling to find buyer interest. Uh, the, the U.S. dollar index is higher, and, and that's somewhat limiting, I think, but uh, corn is the one that's struggling the most to find buyer interest here.
1: Do you have some chart areas you're watching in corn and soybeans to confirm lows? Uh,
7: Yeah, you know, I think that uh, it's important that we move above like the 20-day moving averages and and those types of things. Uh, That tends to get a little bit more uh, buyer interest involved uh, from a technical perspective. And and so if we can push through some of those moving averages, uh, that would help us out a little bit.
1: Right. And where's the strength coming from in livestock today?
7: Well, uh, yesterday, uh, it was kind of hard to explain, but the, uh, the cattle market uh, was down, and, and uh, you know the, everybody talked about the cattle on feed report, but it was fully neutral, and, and so we're just bouncing back today. We're seeing strength in the wholesale market. Uh, not only wholesale beef prices, but also wholesale pork prices, they're uh, strengthening. The cash cattle market is expected to be firmer this week, and cash hog uh, bids continue to, to rise from a seasonal okay. standpoint, so that's the support. All
1: right. Thanks so much, Brian Grady, editor of Pro Farmer, with today's market action here on Agritalk.
5: From powering irrigation engines to warming buildings, propane has always been a part of American farm life. Now you can be a part of propane's future and save money at the same time.
2: Opinions expressed on Agritalk do not necessarily reflect the views of Farm Journal Broadcasting, affiliate stations, or sponsors. If the world is your oyster, we've got pearls of wisdom on Agritalk.
1: And welcome back to Agritalk. I'm Michelle Rook, and for Chip Flory this morning... Well, lots of stuff to talk about today in terms of what's going on on Capitol Hill. Ethan Lane joining us with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. He's vice president of government affairs. Thanks for being with us this morning, Ethan.
8: You bet. Great to be here.
1: Well, let's talk about Congress. First of all, uh, passing another CR last week, kicking the can down the road fiscally here again. And, you know, we don't have a lot of time to get stuff done before these deadlines run out here for funding the government, right?
8: We, we don't. And each time we, we do one of these continuing resolution extensions here in Washington, we seem to lose a couple uh, members of the House Republican Conference, either to early retirements uh, or illness or, or other. And, and so that just narrows that margin and makes it even more difficult uh, for House leadership to uh, to rally for the next round. You know, given that kind of base of no votes uh, in the House Freedom Caucus, uh, this this math gets tougher and tougher with each round of this. Uh, but it is important for them to hold the line and try to get some negotiating done uh, with the Senate and Democrats in order to, to achieve some policy wins, uh, given how uh, bleak the landscape is for other other things to move in this Congress.
1: Yeah, no doubt, because things like the Farm Bill, we can't even get that done until Congress completes funding measures, right?
8: Well, yeah, that's been kind of the idea is I think there was a lot of hope for trying to do a House uh, uh, vote on the farm bill in March. I know that's where uh, Chairman Thompson's head has been. Um, but, you know, that was before this latest extension that, that now kind of takes up that first 10 days of, of March with uh, with another round of funding uh, conversations. That makes it difficult to, to get the time on the floor you need uh, to process a farm bill as well. Um, So that kind of uh, probably slides that into later in the spring, you know, with an April and and May time frame. But all eyes are still on that sort of early summer start to the really earnest campaign season where it's going to be difficult to have much of a robust conversation on anything here in Washington.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Um, And what we have 12 appropriation bills that we have to get done between now and late February. And the House and Senate are only in session at the same time for just, what, seven days?
8: Yeah, very little overlap. And, and, you know, what they'll do is they'll take the last point of progress on those various bills and start negotiating at a certain point from those positions. So if that's in the case of the Agricultural Appropriations Bill, the the House Appropriations Committee passed bill, um, which most of the ag community supports, um, uh, that's going to be the starting point for negotiations on that side versus the Senate version. Um, So it'll kind of be a little bit of everybody put pencils down wherever you are in the process. That's where you start negotiations. Um, and and that's what we can probably expect to see over the next few weeks with the hopes that they can get some kind of a deal cobbled together uh, that that meets all of those different needs by early March.
1: Yeah. So do you think this controversial border protection language is the final thing that has to come together, or will that bog it down? or
8: there's no doubt that that uh, the border uh, and and folks that are that are wanting to use this process to see some relief there. Uh, is going to play a pivotal role. Uh, Of course, you still have folks in the Senate uh, in particular that are uh, extremely motivated to get something done on Ukraine and Israel. Um, So you have all of these sort of larger intangible issues floating over this process. um, And and without question, they are going to have to be part of this conversation one way or another uh, in order to get those votes to the table that are needed to get something passed.
1: Wow. Well, lots to do there. I um, also want to ask you, I know EPA came out with the proposal, I think it was yesterday, to establish some new guidelines for meat and poultry processing facilities in terms of discharge of both phosphorus and nitrogen. Um, talk a little bit about what you see that process playing out like in the next 60-day comment period, and what, what are your thoughts about these guidelines?
8: You know, we're still reading through what EPA put out yesterday, but this is an issue we've been watching for some time now. Uh, Everyone in the cattle industry knows how much effort we've all put into expanding processing, especially in this local and regional bucket, these smaller processors around the country that give our producers more marketing options outside the big four. Uh, This feels like a little bit of a slap in the face from the administration uh, coming back in and sort of uh, targeting these smaller facilities in particular and, and, and sort of upping the threshold on, on systems that in, in some cases uh, have been well designed or working properly. Um, so we, we wanna make sure that we, we aren't going into this sort of government overreach uh, in an area where other parts of the same administration are trying to help these very same facilities. Uh, it seems like there's a little bit of the right hand and the left hand uh, not knowing what the other is doing, but uh, we, we absolutely plan on engaging in that process uh, and, and making sure that those, those small facilities have some protection and, and uh, some voices in their corner.
1: Yeah, no doubt. Uh, USDA also announcing that it's pursuing a remote grading pilot program for beef. Talk a little bit about what that might mean for the industry.
8: Yeah, this is really cool. Uh, So this is something and we've seen uh, USDA AMS make some inroads in a variety of areas here. And, you know, the challenge being, again, with those small facilities, being at a competitive disadvantage to a large facility that, that can afford to pay for, you know, grading equipment and to have graders in the plant to produce those those USDA Prime and USDA Choice packages uh, that consumers we know are looking for, this gives uh, creates a pilot program for those smaller facilities that don't have that on-site presence to use technology uh, to to take some some digital images of of the rib. Uh, get those to an expert um, in a different location that can that can then uh, give a quality grade. It, it really uh, puts another tool in the toolbox for these small facilities and the producers that are selling into them, uh, so that it's not a consolation bracket to be selling into those smaller facilities. So this is a this is a good step in the right direction. It's going to be cool to see that play out.
1: You bet. And these small facilities been have been so key since COVID for sure. Okay, last year at this time when we were at NCBA convention. Uh, we launched or we're about ready to launch the Kettle Contracts Library Pilot Program. Talk about how it's working. Is the industry happy with it? And I know it's gonna it had been extended now.
8: It has been extended. It's been funded multiple times. I think they have about $3 million in in various buckets of federal funding for that program, um, which is is more than they need. It's actually uh, very cost-effective to run since it kind of integrates with what uh, Market News is already doing uh, under Livestock Mandatory Reporting. Um, You know, there there are a a lot of different folks watching that library. Um, You know, it it sure seems like it's offering some additional uh, information into how uh, how cattle are being priced and sold, where premiums are being derived—it's—it's um, it's giving everybody a little bit better look in, into uh, you know what that breakdown looks like across the country and, and regionally, and, and that's 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 good. More information is better, especially when we're talking about this transparency challenge uh, that we've had over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, I, I think it, it remains to be seen what the future of that library is as far as how USDA wants to uh, make it permanent and move forward with it. I think there are some voices that still would like to see uh, a little bit of a broadening in, in the uh, the scope of information. You know, right now it's pretty much focused on the big four. Um, there are some thoughts that, that an expansion of that uh, to a, a larger segment of plants would would offer a little bit better look into to what the marketplace really looks like and how cattle are trading. Uh, but those debates are ongoing and, and uh, folks are still talking about kind of where, where they fall on that. But in the meantime, the pilot persists and, and that information is out there for producers, which is a good thing.
1: Yeah. More transparency is always better for sure. Okay. Let's also talk about the Endangered Species Act. I know all the farm groups are talking about it right now. EPA basically is committing to implementing the Endangered Species Act. A lot of concern about this, isn't there?
8: This has been one of the longest standing challenges to producers, particularly in the Western United States, but, but it, it, honestly across the country. Uh, for the last fifty years, I mean, this is this is when we talk about broken federal laws. This is this is the one that most immediately comes to mind for for a lot of us, just because it is so demonstrably inoperable. Uh, we've proven now time and time again that once a species is listed under the Endangered Species Act, it's nearly impossible to delist that species. Uh, it's like a roach motel. Species check in, but they never check out because of that environmental litigation industry that, that professionally sues the government to force these listings to remain. Whether it's the gray wolf, uh, you know, we're talking about grizzly bears and those iconic species, but, but you know, anymore, you can get down to really small uh, species and issues that, that, that land managers can't control, but nevertheless can serve to lock off those resources. Um, there's a lot of work going on on Capitol Hill, but you know, you have regulatory changes based on a friendly administration versus a hostile one, uh, but you really need statutory changes to ever kind of make permanent changes to the ESA. And, and that's something I've been working on for 15 years in this town. I know others uh, even longer than that, and and it's a battle that that is going to need probably a, a Congress that's a little bit easier to, to work with to, to get something done on that front, But but something we always spend a tremendous amount of time on.
1: Burdensome, costly and really takes away private property rights in a lot of cases, doesn't it?
8: Absolutely. It, it is it is almost never a benefit to have. A, a, actually, let me strike that. I've never seen a species get listed under the Endangered Species Act where the species uh, was better off because of that listing or the, the the landowners and operators that have to operate under it. It is, it is mm-hmm. always a hindrance to real conservation.
1: So there's a lot like, going on in D.C., as I said, but you guys have your convention next week in Orlando. What do you think is going to be driving the policy discussions there?
8: You know, uh, the beautiful thing about the NCBA convention is that it is uh, uh, it's the one time of the year when you get, you know, 8000 cattle producers all in the same place talking about these issues from a variety of different perspectives. And it's that dialogue and those different viewpoints from from different corners of the country and different segments of the industry uh, that makes that grassroots process so so helpful and important. Um, so we're expecting really you know robust discussions on cattle health issues on on cattle markets. Uh, we're going to have a lot of discussion, obviously, in the federal lands community on the BLM conservation rules. Um, I, you know we're, we're coming back into tax season again with those tax cuts and jobs act. Uh, priorities from 2017 beginning to expire next year. Um, so across our seven policy committees we're expecting robust discussion on a, on a range of issues. Uh, and, and you know beyond that, just a good opportunity to to get together with producers from across the country, compare notes, uh, see what everybody's feeling and hearing and seeing and and uh, where we're headed uh, in the coming year. it's a it's an exciting time and we're looking forward to seeing everybody in Orlando.
1: Yeah, we will be there with coverage so um, I will see you next week, Ethan, thanks for being with us.
8: We'll see you down there.
1: You bet. Ethan Lane, NCBA's Vice President of Government Affairs. When we come back, we will be joined by the CEO of the National Pork Board, Bill Even. You're listening to Agritalk.
4: My mom's got a new case, I extract her and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Ship like a race car. Steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her Case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out CaseIH.com.
6: Go on the offensive against weeds with Antares Complete from Helena.
1: Welcome back to Edgar Talk. I'm Michelle Rook in for Chip Glory this morning. Bill Evans, CEO of the National Pork Board, is joining us for this segment this morning. And uh, you are just on the brink of the Iowa Pork Congress there today, huh?
9: You bet. Good morning, Michelle. Yeah, here in the downtown Des Moines, mm-hmm. Iowa today. And it's actually raining here.
1: Yeah, it has been a tough couple of weeks here in terms of the winter weather and slowing down a lot of these uh, processing facilities. Are we getting back to normal yet, Bill?
9: Yeah, we're starting to see that turnaround, Michelle, and a couple of factors here. Obviously, number one, the weather. Uh, we've got a warming trend here in the Midwest and uh, we're able to get uh, the trucks back on the road and get these pigs moving. You had difficulty getting you know, workers into the plants and people into the farms and then just even the safety of moving the animals down the road. You know, a year ago right now, uh, packer margins were in the red. Uh, right now, this year, they're in the black, and so there's an incentive on the processing end to keep those plants open and running and, and move through this supply. So right now, we're seeing you know some, some daily kills, around 490,000 pushing up in that area here. So probably some uh, larger Saturday kills and run mm-hmm. these plants pretty hard right now.
1: Yeah, we've been running, what, under 2.3 million head the last couple of weeks here. So we need to get that chain speed back up. Are we backing up hogs? Is there a concern about that?
9: Yeah, they're definitely backed up a bit. I mean, that that happened again. If you go back in December of 2022, we had a similar issue where a lot of pigs got backed up. I want to say the number escapes me a little. It was around 600,000, I think, over a period of weeks. Yeah. And it, it took a little while to work through that. And uh, it is, it's winter in the Midwest, um, but we'll, we'll, Well, looks like the the processing industry is going to run extra long and hard here and we'll get caught back up. Yeah.
1: Well, it was a tough year, obviously, in 2023 for the pork industry, Bill. And I know as you turn the corner here into 2024, does it look better?
9: Well, certainly on the the feed cost side, uh, that is looking better. But you're right, Michelle, uh, 2023 is going to go down in pork history is probably uh, the largest capital losses, even eclipsing uh, what the industry experienced back in 1998. And uh, that's nothing to shake a stick at. On the good news, as we got uh, fresh corn and, and soybeans from the harvest, uh, we've seen the, the pressure on corn and soybean meal prices, and that's really helped I think, from a cash flow standpoint for a lot of operations. Uh, it's going to take a long while, though, to fill up this deep hole of uh, equity burn that a lot of producers faced. Uh, heading in, in The bottom line here uh, is it's... You know, hog prices historically aren't necessarily that bad. They're softer. The real issue has been just the cost of production. You go back uh, pre-2020 and, you know, the cost of production is around maybe, you know, in that low 60s uh, per head. And now it's pushed up into the upper 90s in uh, 2023. And so you just got caught in that classic cost price squeeze. So uh, lower feed costs are going to help. And that's what a lot of producers are looking forward to the spring here and see what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, prices seem high, but adjusted for inflation, they certainly aren't. Um, Of course, the slaughter figures have been kind of running ahead of USDA projections and the hogs and pigs report here. But we just have had higher productivity. That's added to it as well, hasn't it?
9: It has. Uh, When you look at the the sow kill data, you know, anytime you get uh, over, you know, 1% of the breeding herd, it usually is a signal that we're in reduction. And those signals started hitting uh, midsummer last year. That said, uh, we're doing a much better job of uh, saving the piglets. So there's uh, greater uh, per sow, per litter productivity right now. And so it isn't necessarily a one-to-one reduction. So while we're tightening up the sow herd, uh, our productivity is increased because the animals we still have um, are doing a better job on them. So we're continuing to see increases in production, albeit at a slightly slower rate. But it appears to be uh, in excess of what the USDA originally had anticipated.
1: Yeah, I know we've called some of the poorest sows, obviously that impacts. Improves productivity, but we have less disease, it seems like, too.
9: Yeah, there's been uh, lower incidence of PERS, I would say, generally across the country, looking at some data out of the Morrison Project out of uh, Minnesota. Um, the If you do have it, though, some of the strains that you do have are much more uh, severe. And so it's kind of a, if you dodge the bullet, you're in good shape. But if you end up with it, it's uh, going to be tough to shake. Mm-hmm.
1: All right, the other headwind, Bill, in 2023, carrying over into 24 now, is Prop 12 went fully into effect in California here at the first of the year. What's the fallout, or what's the effect?
9: Yeah, as as you would anticipate, Michelle, uh, looking at the numbers over the first six months from the the middle of the year, last year, till the end of the year, uh, we saw prices go up, availability go down, uh, fresh pork sales uh, dropping. On the plus side, though, uh, ground pork is not covered by Prop 12, and so ground pork sales have actually been increasing, and so it's a mixed bag. Uh, when we talk to the the retail grocery industry in California, we're seeing a lot of supply imbalance out there. Uh, some places are short. Other places are long. And you see uh, Prop 12 compliant loads maybe being moved at a discount. Other places, uh, they can't get a hold of it in order to stock the shelves, so there's just a lot of turmoil right now in the California market that's impacting price and availability for uh, the consumers out there.
1: Yeah. What about demand overall, both exports and demand domestically? How is that looking right now overall?
9: So on the export side, uh, demand has, has been really strong, and we don't have the end of the year numbers for uh, exports for 2023 yet. We'll get them here in a few weeks, but. 2023 is looking, it's probably going to close out around uh, $8.1 billion perhaps, which would be in the top three record year uh, for U.S. exports. Push a little north of, uh, of 25%, maybe that 27%, 28% of our uh, product being exported. And just say, uh, thank God for Mexico. Uh, the Mexican peso oh, no. has been pretty strong vis-a-vis the dollar. And we've been moving a lot of product into Mexico. They're now far and away our number one volume as well as our number one value customer uh, for the U.S. And- On the domestic side, it's it's a bit softer. Um, we just talked about inflations for producers. And that is, uh, you know, the same issue we're dealing with.
1: All right. I know you have a lot of programs that you've been doing, though, through the pork board and the chuck off to help. Uh, push that domestic demand so lots going on thanks bill for joining us appreciate it
9: my pleasure michelle
1: you bet bill even is ceo of the national fork Ford joining us here on the agri talk uh what do we got coming up uh, this afternoon and tomorrow davis i've got uh, the pm show dave chatterton from strategic farm marketing what do you have
2: uh, tomorrow morning, I've got Ernie Goss. We're going to talk economic, uh, economy and economic indicators at our Farmer Forum with two of my absolute favorite guests, Michelle.
1: All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, on behalf of Davis Michelson and Joe Stockler, I'm Michelle Rookin for Chip Flory, and we thank you for joining us for Agritalk here this morning. Welcome back at 2.06 for Agritalk PM.